Indeed, that song, that hymn, is a wonderful introduction to the portion of Scripture before us this morning as we speak of the cross and the work of the cross, the Savior who saves. Please open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just a reminder, there's two books of Corinthians. This is the second one, chapter 5, and we're at the last verse. I'll read uh, a paragraph that includes it from God's Word. As you're turning, let me welcome those who might be viewing from home. Uh, It's good to be back in the pulpit. I can't see you, but we invite you to worship with us. And we pray God's blessing upon you through His Word and by His Spirit. Do be in touch with us uh, from wherever you are. I'd like to begin reading in verse uh, 14. No, in verse uh, 17, as indicated in the program leading up to verse 21, our text for this morning. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 4, verse 21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Thus far we read in the holy word of God. May he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. This verse is a summary of the cross. This verse, verse 21, is one of the most important sentences in the entire Bible. Which is why I've selected one whole sermon to unpack this and to display its glory and will name the doctrines that flow from this verse. This verse describes how God saves us. It describes the Savior who saves us. It describes the results of our salvation. This verse is worthy of our study and attention. What do you think of when you see a cross? The cross is one of the predominant religious symbols in our world today. And many see it and just move along. They've seen a piece of jewelry or some fixture on a building and it has no effect upon them. To the believer who understands the centrality of the cross and what transpired on the historic cross of Jesus 2,000 years ago, it is a stunning, potent symbol. We don't worship a cross, but it reminds us Of the one we do worship. And all that he did. To take care of our sin. And to bring us into a relationship. With Jesus Christ. With our heavenly father. 
I don't know if you know who Isaac Watts is. <laughs> Excuse me. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, in our hymnal, in the very back, you're free to browse during the introduction, but then you'll have to pay attention. There's a list of all the hymn writers. Do you know Isaac Watts wrote 15 hymns that are in our hymnal? That's one of the top producers of hymns. He was the son of a schoolmaster. He was born in Southampton, England in July of 1674. That's a long time ago, long before 1776. Isaac Watts. He's said to have shown remarkable uh, abilities even in childhood, and he began the study of Latin at age four. Any four-year-olds here? Latin? In addition to just understanding English, he was studying Latin, and he was writing respectable verses, writing out Latin sentences at age seven. At the age of 16, he went to London to study in the academy. The number of his publications is huge. He's written a book, by the way, on logic, which is used as a textbook, or was for centuries, a textbook on logic. He's a very bright man, a preacher. His publications include sermons, treaties, some of them in Latin, no, no doubt, poems and hymns. Because not only was his mind active, but his heart was captured by the cross. His very first hymn he composed at age 20 was, Behold the glories of the Lamb. You can only imagine what that was about. Perhaps his most famous hymn is one in our hymnal, number 185, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Can you imagine this prodigious Latin scholar of a young preacher being most enamored with what happened on the cross? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, listen to his reaction. My richest gain... Not Cambridge or Oxford. My riches gain, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Second verse, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. Verse 3, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? In his final verse, Isaac Watts wrote this, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small, love so amazing, so di divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Thomas Watson's life World, affections, aspirations revolved around the cross and who Jesus was and what he did there. And how much of modern Christianity is but a morality captivated with political power, personal advantages, help in a crisis, do we glory in the cross? What charms me most? Is it the love of God in Jesus 
on the cross. These are potent things, my friends. I've been charmed by many things recently on my vacation. Life can get pretty comfortable when you have people waiting on you hand and foot. It's kind of hard to get back to real life. But opening the word of God and seeing what this text tells us about Jesus and the cross, I'm pretty sure I can say what Isaac Watts says. All the vain things that would charm me most, I sacrifice them. I hope this sermon will display Christ. Show the cross at the center of our theology and give you ample actionable steps. You can probably see in the sermon outline sheet we have seven applications this morning. So I cut out the whole third point of the sermon. We just have two points in applications. Let's take a look. This prodigious verse, verse 21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this verse is a summary of the cross, a declaration of God's love. The Scottish pastor and theologian James Denny says, This verse, it is the focus in which the reconciling love of God burns with the purest and most intense flame. Even though, he says, it's mysterious and awful as it is. This verse is the key to the whole New Testament, says James Denny. So the first thing we see here is this picture of Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, talking about the Father's work. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin. Who knew no sin? So we're told several things about Jesus. First, we're told that Jesus was sinless but was made sin. We'll explain explain that one second. But first, remind yourselves that the Son of God was sinless. He came. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus took on the, the limitations of body, skin, and skeleton, digestive tract, uh, mental weariness and the need for sleep after many hours, the ability to feel pain. Jesus took on a human body and lived... 33 years till the cross without sin. Not a stray thought, not a sinful thought, not a sinful word, not a sinful deed. Always did his duty. He did not neglect his spiritual duty. The Lord Jesus Christ was without sin as he lived in this world in human flesh. Amazing how neglected that is. That no one ever could find fault with Jesus. Have you read your Bible? People are constantly amazed. His teaching. And even the guys who wanted to destroy Jesus out of jealousy, they couldn't find anything on him. Nothing. No charge against him. He's brought by the Jews. They had to come up with false witnesses. Even that took all night to get two who could agree on making something up and twisting the words of Jesus. They brought him to Pilate. And in Luke 23, verse 14, Jesus says, or Pilate says about Jesus, there's nothing wrong with the man. I find nothing in him. Nothing sticks. You haven't made your case. And even the thief on the cross. You see, Jesus was sinless to his last breath. One thief reviled the other after watching how Jesus was dying. 
This man was innocent. This man was sinless. Peter would write in his first epistle, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Chapter 2, verse 22. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, speaking of Jesus, but we do have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's hard to imagine. On my best days, I fall short. You do. Not one sin in Jesus. John, 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there was no sin. The Lord Jesus came as the spotless Lamb of God. To take away our sin. You remember the whole Jewish system. We don't have time to review it. If they're bringing a sacrifice. It had to be a spotless lamb. You couldn't just dump off your wounded animals. uh, The one with the broken leg. Or the blind one. Or the one that wasn't eating well. The one that was malnourished. You couldn't just shove that off on God as your sacrifice. You had to bring a healthy spotless lamb. And God has provided that for us. The sinless Son of God. He was made sin for us. Let's look at that expression, made sin, because it's very important what that means. You see, we have a sin problem. And Jesus was sinless, but he was made sin to become the solution to our problem. He was made sin. It does not mean this. Listen, it does not mean that Jesus became a sinner. I need to repeat that. Jesus did not personally become a sinner. God did not transfer my moral uh, immoralities and my culpability, my my, uh, personal sin qualities to Jesus' person that he became a sinner like me. No, that's not what happened. But rather, Jesus became a, a sinless offering for our sin. An ancient uh, theologian, Thomas Crawford, I can't remember his dates, but he talked about this uh, being made sin. He said this imputation, this taking our sins and putting them on Jesus, I'll explain imputation in a minute, is not the transfer of one person's moral qualities to another. Rather, what was transferred to Christ were the legal consequences of our sin. Jesus voluntarily accepted liability for our sins. I remember once driving to see my in-laws, the same wonderful in-laws that just took us on a cruise. And I'm, you know, a poor seminary student driving an old car and I'm at the edge of town and the transmission blows. Oh no, I barely have enough gas money for this trip. My transmission blows. My father-in-law says, it's not my transmission. It's not really my problem, but take it to my guy and I'll have it fixed. Wow, he took on himself the consequences of what had gone wrong. All the more, the imputation that God the Father enables here is that his son would take the consequences for our sin. Jesus died for our sins while he was yet himself sinless. 
and picture that spotless lamb or the scapegoat that is used in the sacrifice being sent out. The animal doesn't become a human sinner. But he bears away our sins. The theological doctrine that's talked about here, and you'll, you'll hear a few notes. They put them in your margin if you want to follow them up. It's called imputation. To impute uh, means to reckon, uh, to, to, to take out the ledgers, and it's a legal forensic type of declaration. Okay, you are responsible for this debt. You are responsible for these transgressions, even though you're innocent. Imputation. And we'll see that there's actually a double imputation at work here. But this first phrase, our Savior is made sin for us. It goes on to speak. It, it implies that he is a willing substitute for us. He was made sin, not just to do it, but with a purpose for us. He becomes our substitute the Bible teaches the doctrine of the cross is substitutionary atonement. Jesus' death was not for himself, it was for us. You see, there are false views that Jesus was coerced into going to the cross or Jesus went to the cross to appease an angry God. All these, uh, uh, these sh short half-truths that really mess with the beauty of the gospel and the clear teaching of the Bible. Jesus went willingly. He and the Father in eternity past had planned this great salvation which was unfolding in due time. Jesus said constantly, I came not to do my own will, but the will of he, him who sent me. In John's gospel, three quick, quick references. John 10, 15. Jesus is speaking and he says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. That's a willing sacrifice. That's a substitution for us. Instead of the sheep dying, the shepherd is struck. John 10, verse 17, shortly thereafter, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. There's no conflict in the Godhead that God is, is, is practicing some sort of as someone has said, divine child abuse in, in punishing. It, it's some of the crazy things that are said out there. But the beauty of the Bible, as Jesus explains it, my father loves me, I love him, and I'm going to lay down my life for my sheep. And in John 17, you might know that address as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, the longest prayer of Jesus in the Bible, John 17. And as he's there and speaking and praying, he opens with these wonderful words that show his, his willing cooperation with the plan of salvation. Let me sample them for you. John 17, the first three verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. They're in this together. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, says Jesus, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, who you, who, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The divine Son of God 
who became flesh to lay down his life and take it up will be and is now at the right hand of God the Father. He was a willing substitute. When we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, a few weeks down the road, we'll see this expression from Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's using some figurative language there, right? He's not talking about stimulus checks. He's talking about what God has done for us in Christ. What we could never do for ourselves that has enriched us spiritually with abundant life and eternal life that we experience even now. Because of our willing, holy sacrifice. Let's look at the second part of our text today. 2 Corinthians 5.21 has two major clauses, just 15 words in Greek. And these two clauses talk about the same transaction, but from different angles. The first we just looked at, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And here's the second clause. It's a purpose clause. So that in him, in Jesus, we believers might become the righteousness of God. My friends, this is talking about the salvation of sinners. The salvation of sinners. This is good news. It talks about uh, the price of sin being paid. He knew sin so that something might happen to us. He knew sin. He took sin. He dealt with sin. He paid the price of sin so that we could be reconciled. You know, that's what he talked about earlier in the chapter when he talked about the the reconciliation in verse, uh, um, got to put on the glasses, verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? It means that everything's okay. That there's a relationship that's healthy between you and the God who made you. You and your Father in heaven. You know what it's like to have strained relationships. But to be reconciled with God. To have God say, don't forget, ask me anything you need. Jesus say, ask my Father in my name. Everything's reconciled. How does that come about? Because the obstacle of our sin has been paid. It's been cleared. As Paul Barnett says, reconciliation does not mean ignoring human rebellion or reducing God's displeasure with sin. An action was necessary. We know that sin is not ignored. It was paid for. You see, God's not like a grandfather up in heaven and looks down and says, oh, those human beings are in trouble. That's okay. Never mind. No, God is not like that. God is just, God is holy. And God himself has planned the solution that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in God. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. 
As Peter would explain it in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's describing Jesus on the cross. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's what Peter understood about the cross. Sin has been paid so that we're no longer straying. We've returned to the shepherd. By his wounds we have been healed. A price has been paid. There's foolish universalist thinking out in the world that, oh yeah, I heard Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's great because I'm in a lot of trouble. And there's this presumption about sin. But this is a death for the sheep, those who trust in the shepherd, those who return to the shepherd, those who are in the flock on the last day. The price Jesus paid was for his people And the price was very real. We're reading through the Gospel of Mark in worship in chapter 15 this morning. And we're just about to get to the paragraph on the crucifixion. I I tried to time it a little better. But the very next paragraph will tell us that from noon until 3 p.m. A darkness consumed the land. And at 3 p.m. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. It is finished and breathed his last. Paul Barnett says the darkened sky in the gospel story is an outward sign of the cosmic and eternal transaction which took place at the cross. That darkening as God's wrath against the sin of his people was meted out upon Jesus. Part of what Jesus cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bearing the sin experience is the the wrath of God against that sin. And he takes all the punishment we would have taken if we spent eternity in hell. All laid on Christ for your sins, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins, all laid on Christ. And an exchange is made. Let me use this term exchange. As John Stott says, verse 21 speaks of our salvation as an exchange. He took our curse that we may receive his blessing. That's what's happening here. Our sins are imputed to him and his righteousness is given to us. This language of exchange. We see it as well in a parallel passage. Turn with me briefly to Galatians Chapter 3, Galatians is a very important letter in the New Testament talking about how we receive our salvation. It's not received by works, but it's received by faith. But just looking at this excerpt from chapter 3, verse 13, as Paul writes to these believers and to us. He says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Right? We were the sinners. We were under judgment. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us as it is written. And here he quotes the Old Testament, um, the book of Deuteronomy. Cursed 
is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The transaction, the curse that was headed our way, the wages of sin is death, the curse was laid on Christ, and what's laid upon us? We, we receive blessings, we receive righteousness, we receive the Holy Spirit. commentator has said the curse of God which falls upon lawbreakers fell instead upon the accursed the crucified one so that the lawbreakers can be set free that's amazing that's the good news we're made righteous now here we have to remember how imputation works remember sin's imputation to Christ it didn't turn him into a a moral degenerate a sinner rather the legal consequences fell on him Imputation from Christ to us, his righteousness, doesn't make me perfect, doesn't make me divine. But the legal consequences of his righteousness become mine. My record is clear. God sees me as a child of God. God adopts me. He forgives me. All the legal consequences fall upon us. This is the double imputation. This is how R.C. Sproul explains it. And you know, this paragraph is on a YouTube video, so you can search R.C. Sproul and imputation. You'll hear these words. At the heart of the gospel is a double imputation. My sin is imputed to Jesus. His righteousness is imputed to me. And in this twofold transaction, we see that God, who does not negotiate sin, who doesn't compromise his own integrity with our salvation, but rather punishes sin fully and really after it has been imputed to Jesus, God retains his own righteousness. And so he is both just and the justifier, as the apostle tells us in Romans 3. So my sin, says R.C., my sin goes to Jesus, his righteousness comes to me in the sight of God. This verse describes that transaction, the cross, the blessing of salvation. The doctrine being described here is justification, justification by faith. We are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We obtain this righteousness of his as my own. You read about that in Romans 1, in Romans 3, in Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, the rest. Justification. As Paul would explain that the cross was necessary. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's so much better than just having a grandfather say it doesn't matter. God has a plan to put away sin and to to bring about change in us that we're declared righteous and we're restored and reconciled And then to begin that sanctification process so that we match that someday in heaven. I'm not perfect yet. But when we get to heaven, there won't be any sin. So God's making me more holy as I live the Christian life. My justification, which is true now, is followed by sanctification. And that's another sermon. And just to underline, this transaction comes to us by faith in Christ. 
faith in Christ. That's what it said in in both uh, Romans and in Galatians. And it's implied here that it comes by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Remember we're in chapter 5? Do you remember verse 7? It's a few weeks back. Paul said, writing to these believers about the Christian life, we walk by faith, not by sight. The blessings of Christ in the cross, this transaction, how do I get that? Well, you don't have to input your email or check a box when you see a streetlight or a crosswalk. It's by faith in Christ. As the hymn writer would say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. By faith in Christ, who he is and what he has done. I want that transaction. I want that. Lord, take away my sin and make me right within. We even get the blessings of Abraham. They come to the Gentiles, as, as Galatians said, we receive that through faith. That's so important. There's a famous theological treatise that I just reread this last week. John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. I don't know if you've heard of that. John Owen, one of the, the smartest theologians among all the Puritans, he could write. Boy, and, and a lot of stuff he's written is really yet to be uh, refuted when he makes this case. He talks about the death of death and the death of Christ. Well, introducing that work in English, there's a little essay by J.A. Packer. The introductory essay, it's 50 pages. It's one of the best summaries of Christianity in print. I read it as a young believer and it shaped my theology. The introductory essay by James Packer. And one of the main points he makes is that this work of Jesus on the cross just doesn't make salvation possible if, if, if we come to our own faith, but it even creates the gift of faith. In other words, the salvation of Christ isn't a hypothetical salvation. It's a real salvation for those who believe. So my first application this morning with this tremendous text in front of us is this. Believe. Believe the gospel. Believe verse 21. This verse, this New Testament, this Bible does not say... Do all the works of the law, and then you have a shot at heaven. The Bible says, believe this. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Believe what Christ has done. That's your only part. You're not on the cross. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus, the sinless one, in your sin, you can't save yourself. Believe. The gospel and do not delay. Here's what J.F. Packer says. And it's wise counsel. And I think it's for someone in this room. Do not postpone believing in Christ. Till you think you are better. Honestly confess your badness. Give yourself up here and now. To the Christ who alone can make you better. And wait on him till his light rises in your soul. It is mine but to believe. That's good news. Christianity isn't about how to clean up your act to gain heaven. 
but rather having been given Christ, having been bought with a price, having God now at work in you, imputing the righteousness of Christ to you, then he works in your life. But you must first believe. Will you believe? I pray you will. I have more applications that begin with B. Let's move through them quickly. Secondly, behold. Behold. I I hope something of the amazing grace of God at the cross is is awakened in you. That your your jaw just drops. What what Christ did. Well, we were yet sinners, Christ died. I, I wasn't born and I started life sinful as you did. But long before Christ did this. And it has changed my life. Do you behold the saving love of God at the cross? Isn't it amazing? Do you remember how Paul started chapter 5? He said, we know, I can see the grin on his face, even through pain, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That sounds a lot better than even a cruise in the Caribbean. Paul says, I know this. I see what God has done. I'm just amazed at that and helped by that and blessed by that. That's part of worship. If you behold the cross, if you behold your Savior and you worship him and adore him, that's a sign of the new birth. And yes, to flip it around. So you know how a pastor, how an elder in the church thinks. The one who professes to be right with God and does not worship his Savior is not likely right with God. The telltale sign of a true believer is one who worships his rescuer, his Savior. Your guilt has been taken away. Your ship has come in. Heaven is yours. And you're not grateful, you're not thankful, you're not worshiping. God made us for that very thing. And Christ restores our relationship and we can know God and make him known. Yes, I know there's pain in life and it's hard to praise the Lord in your pain. But he is still God and he is still with you. His rod and his staff comfort us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. I am his and he is mine. I recently visited a woman in the hospital and she was afraid and admitted her faith was shaky. I said, let me remind you, all you need to do is be the sheep and have the Lord as your shepherd. And I started, I opened my Bible, I started to read the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And she began to recite it with me and everything changed. As the truth of God bore that fruit of believing and joy and comfort and peace and hope because of these realities. Be amazed, worship and trust this Lord. The few other B's that I really want to emphasize. Number three, behave. Behave. We know what it means to behave. It's been a while since someone told you. I'm telling you, behave as a Christian. Live uprightly. Now, where is that, Pastor? We're looking at the cross. Well, it says here, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We talked about the imputed righteousness and justification. That's consequence. We don't automatically become perfect. We're justified, but that also begins a life of holiness. If you've been born again, you live differently. You better be behaving as a child of God. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Live uprightly, bear fruit, please God. You remember what Paul wrote in chapter 5, verse 9. Again, this verse 21 is tied to this whole chapter. Verse 9 said, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, what? To please him. There's a behaving that takes place. If you're a Christian, there's the behaving that pleases your Father in heaven. Fourth, be done with fleshly ways and views. Again, we're, we're kind of summarizing some of the points made in the chapter. In this chapter, in verse 16, Paul said this. From now on, from when? From this exchange. Now as a Christian, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. He's saying, I don't see things the way I used to. I don't just see with worldly eyes. I see myself. I see Christ. I see others differently. Boy, I remember when I got converted. I started pointing sin out to people. Oh, did you see the sin in that movie? And the clumsiness of a new believer. Yeah, that was me. And people are looking at me. What are you talking about? That's a movie. Yeah, but they were doing this. They were doing that. Just so alert to things. But this be done is addressed to us. And Paul reminds us that we ourselves need to be done with worldly ways and measures. Next, number five, be gracious, love others, and serve others. That was part of Paul's chapter two in verses 14 and uh, 13 and 14. He said, uh, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. I love you guys. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Who is the us? Those who have undergone this exchange, who've been born again. We are loving like Christ. Even the unlovely people. Be gracious, be loving, and serve others. Number six, we're almost done with these applications. Broadcast. Share the message. Be an ambassador for Christ. Verse 20 made that point. And it's interesting. Paul not only talks about being an ambassador for Christ... He has verse 21 followed to remind us of the potent message we carry. Our message is good news for whoever hears. Because if they say, oh, well, I'm not really going to church much. Or I don't know about this and that. That's fine. There's a great exchange available to you. You only need to have sin. Do you have sin? Yes. Bring it to Jesus. Be an ambassador. Broadcast the gospel. We need to do better at that. And I can tell you right now, these are opportune days for the gospel. People start complaining about the White House or Congress or about this or that, worried about the supply chain or Bitcoin or whatever else comes up. That's an open door to address fears and concerns with some good news. Thoughtfully, prayerfully. You've been given, you've been tasked. With this message, God has called you into his service. You're not your own. Let me remind you. 
Will we pass the course if we don't do the homework? We're to be ambassadors. We have to say something to those who need to hear it. And finally, I think all of us need to hear this last application. Resting on the finished work of Christ. Be patient. Be patient and take encouragement. Paul had touched on that just briefly in the chapter. Back in 6 and 7. Just, it's like he takes a breath in between all these great points he's making about a heavenly home and reconciliation. It's like, ah. at verse 6, he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's almost a sigh. But in verse 7, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Be of good courage. Understand how God works. And how God has worked in Christ. My friends, I trust that this sight of the cross, this sight of Christ the Savior, the imputation of sin to him and righteousness to us and God's giving us a hope and a blessing, even the blessings of Abraham to us because of Christ, makes you of good courage today and always. Because love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time took on human flesh and was obedient to death, even the death of the cross, and how you raised him to newness of life at the resurrection. And he's ascended into heaven, and there he awaits his return when he will come for his people and make all things new. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ on the cross today. May we always have it in mind. May it control us and become our greatest boast. May it capture our affections as well as our attentions. Father, answer this prayer for your glory in this place and in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.